I know a lot of people call Yellowstone, particularly Lamar Valley, the American Serengeti. Mm -hmm. I wonder if people in Africa call the Serengeti the African Lamar Valley. (laughs) I'm sure they do, Matt. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. In today's episode, we're talking about some beautiful scenic drives throughout various national parks and a couple of national forests and even one of our favorite state parks. That's right. And besides the scenery, these drives are notable in other ways. We'll take you to the highest paved road in the United States, a few roads that are considered engineering marvels, and also one that's been called the most dangerous road in the lower 48, according to USA Today. We'll share everything from our favorite place to buy pie to the best hikes that we discovered as we road trip through these public lands. And to kick things off, we discuss our new truck and a few of its new gadgets. At the end of the episode, we'll answer a question from a listener in our mailbag segment. We got back from Utah a few weeks ago where we had the chance to break in our new truck that we bought over the summer. We got it nice and dirty and took it on some back roads and tested it out. And so overall, I think we're pretty happy with the change that we made. We had a Ford F-150 and it was a good truck, but we kind of got to the point where it had a lot of miles and Mm -hmm. we oftentimes go into areas where there's no one to help you out if you get stuck or in trouble. The F-150 got to a point where I wasn't super comfortable taking it, given the number of miles it had into uh, some places where we'd have to self-rescue or try to fix the truck, which I've never opened the hood of the truck before. So (laughs) my ability to to fix any engine problem is is limited. The other thing, too, is it has a really big footprint. And some of those narrow roads, trying to find a spot to turn around was virtually impossible. Well, right. And an F-150 has a turning radius of two and a half miles. So <laughs> that that's a little that's a little bit tough on those really tight roads. There was one road we did going up to Minotaur Lake and the bushes were rubbing up against the truck on both sides. So it was a little wide for some of the roads that we go down. So we got a forerunner, a Toyota forerunner mm-hmm. uh, recently. And I think that's a little bit better for us. I wanted something that was built a little bit more specifically for rough roads. So this truck has a little bit better clearance, rougher tires, a little a, a skid plate, better suspension, those those kinds of things that, that help us on these rough roads. Yeah, it was a little bit of a challenge to get used to the smaller size because on road trips for the past five years, I could basically throw anything in the back of the truck that I wanted to and bring. You did. I know. So multiple coats because I didn't know what kind of coat I'd need and multiple shoes and basically just anything I wanted. You know, sometimes there were lamps back there. And, and a fan. And if, you, if, if we found an animal head, we could buy it, it multiple animal heads and, and throw them in the back. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so now we're a little more limited. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I have to get used to that because you know, everything's piled in the back of the Forerunner. Mm-hmm. But, but even though we now have a truck that's, that's built a little bit better for rough roads, 
there's still a limit as to what we can do. And we're, we're learning this also. Right. And the other thing, too, I think it's going to take some experience because a lot of these rougher roads and some things that we encountered in Utah we've never done before. So I think it's going to take us both getting to know the truck and, and its capabilities a little bit more before we venture out on some of those things that we saw while we were down there. There have been things we've already turned around and used our better judgment. There was a road north of Campbell Reef. You wanted to go back to Cathedral Valley? Yes, it's been on my list forever. It said in the in the road description there was a small water crossing. <laughs> now, when I think of small water crossing for a truck, maybe there'll be water in the river, maybe not. It'll be a couple inches deep. We get to this water crossing, and you literally have to drive into the river and we couldn't see the bottom of the river. Mm-hmm. And so that was a problem. You kept throwing rocks. And, and I don't know how throwing big rocks into the middle of the river helps you <laughs> determine how deep it is well, because the rocks to... just disappeared. Well, I know. but And that signaled a problem, right? <laughs> right, that the rocks disappeared. So that it told me what I needed to know. We looked at it and the water was moving so fast. It was moving fast. And not only do you have to put the truck in the water, then you have to immediately take a right-hand turn. And drive down the river for about 50 yards Mm -hmm. and then take a left-hand turn out. And I just didn't think that that was a good thing to do with the brand new truck. No. I was a little bit worried that it would be up over the doors, you know, the bottom of the doors. Mm -hmm. Now, I have been told by the salesperson at the dealership that truck sealed up. So it wouldn't take on water. Actually, what he said was the, the bigger problem is because it's sealed up, if you're in deep enough water, it'll become buoyant. Oh, that's what I was afraid of, <laughs> that we go sailing down the river in the truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I also didn't know where the, where the in, air intake was for the engine, so I didn't want to stall it out. So there are some things we back away from. Right. We definitely backed away from that, which was disappointing because that is part of the loop for the Cathedral Valley. So we had figured out at that point, after we backed away, that you enter at one point, you do a loop, and you exit at a different point. So we figured we could go in the exit, go around, see the temples of the sun and the moon, and then go back out the exit without ever having to do the river crossing. But as it turned out, when we called the road condition recorded number for Capitol Reef, they told us that the road was impassable on both sides of the temples of the sun and the moon within five miles on both sides because of deep sand. And is that a temporary thing? Does the deep sand go away? That's just it. Where does the deep sand? Does it get harder over time and then the road's okay? To me, that's code for we don't want people back there because we don't want to go rescue them. Right, which I think has been a problem. It's extremely remote. Of course, there's no cell service. And I think the road is extremely rough. So it was a disappointment to me because, like I said, it's been on my list for a long time. And now that we have the forerunner, I thought it would be a piece of cake. But I think we also have to use our best judgment, especially until we get maybe a little more comfortable with what exactly the truck is capable of doing. I did buy some accessories that would help us rescue if we got into trouble. Like what? Not self-rescue, which is you keep saying (laughs) self-rescue, which I don't think that's possible. I bought a snack strap. A snack strap? 
Okay, that's the greatest. A snack strap. And I bought some shackles for the uh, rescue points on the truck. I don't even know what any of that means. It's just this metal piece that you attach the snack strap to. So a snack strap is a really big nylon strap that you attach to your truck. And then you attach, this is the important part, you attach to the other truck that came by (laughs) that you flagged down (laughs) and you talked them into rescuing you out of the deep sand. (laughs) So it's not Uh self-rescue. It's find a stranger to pull you out. And then this nylon strap has a little bit of give to it. So you have to know what you're doing. You also need to be able to communicate with the person rescuing you. So I have these little inexpensive walkie-talkies. you got to be able to talk and tell them when to start and mm-hmm. when to speed up or slow down or when to stop and all, all those things. But it's, it's interesting how a snack strap works. I would think that you just hook up a chain to mm-hmm. the other truck and you hook the chain to your truck and they just pull you out. Well, that's, that's not exactly how it works. These nylon straps actually bend a little bit. They flux just enough. And what happens is the rescuing truck starts to pull, the nylon strap stretches, and then it rebounds. And right as it rebounds, it gives this extra pull on the truck that's stuck. And that's the thing that kind of pops you out of your place that you're stuck. It's why it's called a snatch. Is that where the snatch comes in? I don't know. In? The snatch is just like, <laughs> here, here, hold on to this and snatch me out of this hole that I've. I hope we never have to be snatched out of anywhere. <laughs> I don't have a winch. A winch, you could self rescue with a winch mm-hmm. if you knew what you were doing. Yeah, that's, that's where we go into that's trouble. The, that's the part that that's a little bit trickier because we usually don't know what we're doing. Right. This is like a brave new world for us trying to figure all this out. So this last trip to Utah, we explored a lot of back roads, including the bird trail for the first time. So we got the idea to do this episode on some of our favorite scenic drives. What are we talking about today? What is this episode about? <laughs> well, as I just mentioned, <laughs> we're going to be talking about some of our favorite scenic drives. Now, it was really tough to cull the list because there are so many incredible scenic drives in our public lands that it was tough to narrow this down. But you and I have a tendency to talk and talk and talk. So I tried to keep the list short. And maybe down the road, we'll do a second episode of scenic drives where we can put in all the things that we left out this time. Looking at this list, I can already think of an entire second episode of Roads that we left off. So we're going to start out in Montana, all the way north in Montana, almost to the Canadian border in Glacier National Park with its amazing going to the sun road. This is one of the roads that is one of my favorite to drive. This is the closest to certain death (laughs) that we've ever come, even though it's a paved road. Yeah, it always seems to be dicey for us up there. So going to the Sun Road is 50 miles long, and it connects West Glacier to St. Mary on the east side. It's the only road that runs continuously through the park. 
typically they open the Going to the Sun Road around the 1st of July. I think that's just an average by the time they have cleared all of the snow. Now, we were there this year, and they it opened late. I don't think it opened until about July 14th, so you never know from year to year. And then usually it's open until sometime in October when it starts to snow again, and then they close. they close the Alpine section. We should mention that just in case it's not open, there is another way to get to the other side of the park, depending on, you know, if you're on the west side, you need to get to the east side. There is a highway that runs the length of the park along the border on the south border of the park. For sure. A couple of interesting videos on the National Park website, and we'll put a link to them in the show notes, where they show them clearing the road. Mm-hmm. And they they did a little mini documentary one year clearing the road. And it's just incredible because it's tens of feet deep with – and it's not just snow. When the, when the snow builds up and it starts to slide down the mountain onto the road, there's huge boulders in there. And uh, they have huge earth-moving equipment that's shoveling the snow out. It's it's pretty spectacular engineering feat. It is. Plus, you can see in those videos how gorgeous this road is up there. It was completed in 1932, and we looked it up. It took more than 10 years to build and $2 million. It was considered an engineering marvel at the time. So in 1983, it was included in the National Register of Historic Places, and in 1985, it was made a National Historic Civil Engineering Landmark. One of the great things about this road is if you drive the length of it, it takes you through every every kind of terrain in the park. So it's a good overview of the entire park. So you can drive past large glacial lakes like Lake McDonald and Cedar Forest. And then, of course, up through Alpine terrain over Logan Pass and then down back on the east side, the St. Mary area. That's right. And when you're climbing up to the Alpine section, it climbs 3,300 feet and crosses the Continental Divide at Logan Pass, which is about 6,600 feet high. So you're definitely way up there. Also, I've seen a lot of photos. There's a lot of wildlife up there. So the grizzly bears frequent that area, as do mountain goats. And there are some amazing trailheads up there. Now, one of the issues is finding a place to park because this road gets very congested in the summer. And there are very limited parking areas. One is at the visitor center, which is at Logan Pass. The parking lot fills up by 8 or 8.30 on summer mornings, and then it's full for the rest of the day. So if you want to have a place to park, our suggestion would be go off-season or go very early in the morning. It gets crowded just because the road's spectacular to drive, and then people stop at the visitor center. But also those the hikes we talked about are pretty spectacular up there. And, and when we say that there's no place to park, we're talking about pullouts, any small space on the side of the highway that's you could possibly park a vehicle there. Parking pretty much is gone early in the day. Right. And most summers, they also have a red bus and a shuttle system that will take you up there that I think a lot of people use and is a good alternative to driving your own car. And speaking of driving your own car, it is restricted to vehicles that are 21 feet or less. 21 feet is not that long. No. I mean, there are there are pickup trucks that are 21 feet long. 
So basically what they're saying is no trailers because you I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's physically possible to have a vehicle plus the trailer and in combination. Those two things are 21 feet or less. We do know people who have tried to take trailers up on the road. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast and, and this sounds familiar, you might identify with this. Then we won't name names, but <laughs> some people have tried to take their trailers up there. And there are rangers standing on the road mm-hmm. looking for people they Pull you over at the visitor center, give you a ticket, and send you back, whichever, yeah. whichever direction you came from. <laughs> That's right, <clears throat> Craig. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we've driven this road three times. The first time was 20 years ago. We took our kids there, and we were trying to remember the details, and it's pretty much a blur to us, mostly because our kids were preteens, not super happy about sitting in the back seat on this driving trip. And so we didn't get to see much. We didn't see a lot on that first <laughs> No, and we also didn't see a lot when we went back in 2011 during our two-year parks trip, because when we got up there... It was so foggy. Do you remember that? It was the probably the yes, most white knuckle drive. We still we've... traumatized <laughs> by, by that. <laughs> we could not see more than what maybe four feet in front of the car. I honestly don't think I could see four feet in front of the car. All I could see was we were driving west to east, and so the for most of it the the drop off was on the right side of the car and. All I look, all I could see is the white line at the edge of the road. And I couldn't see from the white line to the right where the cliff dropped off because that, that would be another, you know, three or four feet. And I couldn't see that far. And what was scary about that is there were times when there would be a break in that white line. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea really where I was. I couldn't even see the brake lights of the car in front of us that was maybe 20 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it was it was super scary. It was. And because of that, we didn't try to pull off in the visitor center. You couldn't even see where the visitor center was. We didn't try to do any hikes. We just wanted to get over that pass and be done with it. Literally, it was zero visibility. And then, then we had to make our way back down the other, other side with really – not much to guide us. Right. There are a few wooden guardrails. And then what they have along the edge of these very steep drop-offs, they have these kind of rectangular stones placed along the edge, but they're very low to the ground. They're maybe a foot tall. I feel like it would be super easy just to go right over those stones. I, I don't think they're keeping any cars. Well, from- <laughs> if you were going fast enough, yeah. I, I think if you were going slow, it, it would bounce you back mm-hmm. towards the road. Yeah. So that was a bummer because, again, this is a stunning road. There are waterfalls and views for days, and we could not see a thing. Now, fast forward to 2017, we went back for another visit with our friends, John and Lolly, and we drove it once again. But on this visit, we had to break down camp. We'd stayed in a campground over by West Glacier. And by the time we broke down camp and got up there, It was probably 9 or 10 in the morning, and there was not a single place to park. On some trip to Glacier in the summer, when we know the road's open, we're just going to have to plan it as the main activity of the day. Get up early, go 
find a, a pullout next to one of the hikes we want to do and just just do it. It can't be this afterthought. Oh, we're going to do these other things. And then if it works out, we'll go over the going to the Sun Road and, mm-hmm. and find a place to park. That's, that's probably not going to happen. That's right. And the other thing, too, we might mention is during the two weeks before they open the road to cars, they open the road to bicyclists. And so we thought it would be fun to take a bike up there and actually bike the road. Now, of course, it would have to be an e-bike with a motor. With, because... you know, with, the, with the battery. That you, would, <laughs> that you would just push the battery yes. and zip up to the top. Well, and, yeah, the I'm battery not... doesn't last forever. <laughs> I can't bike up 3,300 feet. I already know that. So I would definitely need an e-bike, but I think that would be fun, too, to see it up there without any cars on a bike. Maybe we'll try that next summer. This next road is possibly my favorite drive of all time. It's certainly in the the top list. Mm Mm-hmm. The Beartooth Highway. Now, Beartooth Highway is in both Montana and Wyoming. It's U.S. Highway 212. And it's about 68 miles of paved road. It's a, it's a national scenic byway. It's an all-American road. Mm-hmm. And now it goes from Cook City, which is just outside the northeast entrance of Yellowstone National Park. And then it goes kind of at an angle from there northeast to Red Lodge in in Montana. Mm -hmm. It runs through three national forests, Custer, Gallatin, and Shoshone. And it's a million, well, it's over a million acres of wilderness with 20 peaks over 12,000 feet high. So this is what you're looking at as you drive the Beartooth Highway. And it is truly spectacular. I know we use the word, I noticed this in our writing. We use the word spectacular and magnificent and wonderful and all of these. I don't know what other words that we can replace them with. But a lot of these times when we say it's spectacular, it, that's exactly right. It's a spectacular drive, especially at the high points of, of elevation. Absolutely. Now, this road, because of the amount of snow they get, it's normally plowed by Memorial Day, although some years we've heard it opens later than that. And it's open until about mid-October or whenever it starts snowing again. Now, it's interesting. I looked up the history because I always like to know the history of these roads. And as it turns out, most of them are historic and were built a long time ago. What I found out about this one was in 1872... The pass was crossed by Civil War General Philip Sheridan and 120 of his men after they were returning from an inspection tour of Yellowstone National Park, which had just been made a park that year. So instead of taking the long way around, they took the advice of an old hunter who knew those Beartooth Mountains and who suggested that they go up over the Beartooth Pass. And so then years later, when the road was opened in 1936, it essentially followed Sheridan's route over the pass. This road is the highest elevation highway in Wyoming and Montana. So it goes up to in Wyoming, almost 11,000 feet and then uh, just over 10,000 feet on the Montana side. It's also the highest elevation highway in the northern Rockies. Like we said, it goes up almost 11,000 feet. And the wildlife up there, it's very similar to Yellowstone National Park. They've got black bears, grizzly, elk, wolves. They've got all the big ones. All of the big ones. And the last time we were there, which happened to be just this past summer in July, 
we were looking for a really great hike to do, and we found one at Beartooth Lake. So there is a loop hike there, which is about eight miles. And when we got to the trailhead and got out and looked at the, looked at the board that they have there with the map and everything, they had a lot of grizzly bear warning signs on there. So it took, made me a little nervous. So we took our bear spray. <laughs> yes. And we, we didn't really know anything about this trail before we hiked it. It was one of the best. It's, I, I'm trying not to use the word spectacular because it's <laughs> because it was spectacular. It was one of the best hikes we've we've ever done. This will vary by year, but early July there was still snow on the trail. But one of the things that was made that challenging is there, there were a lot of water crossings. Oh my gosh, and so we, many! And we knew this, so we were we were prepared to just go in waist deep if we had to, which which we did a, a few times. So the 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 snow melt was rushing, and we had to be pretty careful to not lose our footing in some of these water crossings. And then when we got kind of to the backside of the loop, we found it's still a lot of snow fields, which always are a little nervous for me because I never know if I'm walking across 100 feet of snow, if all of a sudden I'm just going to plunge through and uh, never be seen again. But back part of the loop, the lakes there were amazing. Oh my gosh, you, you crest over this hill and all of a sudden this chain of lakes is visible and behind it are these granite mountains and it and as Matt said it's a very alpine setting so there are these uh, I don't know are those pine trees up there I don't know what I, yeah, yeah I don't know what exactly I don't think they have larches I don't think they do either but it was one of the most stunning scenes we've ever seen stunning how's that for <laughs> it's yeah, not stunning, spectacular, amazing. <laughs> spectacular. Um, but yeah the snow was deep and the other thing too that was a little well a couple things were dicey on that one was the snow covered the trail. And so many times we would have been lost if Matt had not had um, his Gaia app that showed us where the trail should be because we couldn't see it often. And the other thing, too, was with all those water crossings, we never knew for sure what was coming up ahead of us. And we thought, what if there's a water crossing that's too big to cross? We'll have to go all the way back. The, yeah, the eight-mile trail mm-hmm. could have turned into a 16-mile trail. Right. But if you do this hike later in the season, obviously – the water crossings would be much less or maybe not there at all. This was, I think, due to snow melt. So be prepared to get wet, get muddy. Mm-hmm. I-, I would guess even in the dead of summer, it's still going to be muddy back there. So that's the only hike that we've done along the Beartooth Highway, but there are a lot of other really great hikes that we're going to explore down the road. Also, there are camping opportunities up there, different camping spots. So there a, a ton of recreation up there available to whoever wants to explore the area. So moving on, if you're going to drive the Beartooth Highway, then of course you should also drive one of our other favorite scenic roads, which is the road that runs through the Lamar Valley in Yellowstone National Park. And this connects to the northeast entrance and connects to the Beartooth Highway, so you can do it all as one beautiful drive. I know a lot of people call... Yellowstone, particularly Lamar Valley, the American Serengeti. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if people in Africa call the Serengeti the African Lamar Valley. <laughs> I'm sure they do, Matt. <laughs> so the road through the Lamar Valley is about 29 miles long, and it connects the Tower Junction area of the park with, as we've said, the northeast entrance to the park. 
I love this robe because it's open all year round. Yeah. We, we go there in the wintertime and it would be easy for them to just say, uh, we're going to, we're going to not maintain that. Although Cook City would then absolutely be cut off because oh. uh, you have to drive through the Lamar Valley to get up, up, up to Cook City. But the fact that it's open gives you access not only to seeing the wildlife, but there's a lot of great snowshoe trails back there. There are. And it, as a matter of fact, it's the only road that's open all year in Yellowstone. So, yeah, any season of the year, even in the dead of winter, it's an absolute beautiful place to go. Now, back on my history geek notes here. <laughs> there isn't much on the history of the Lamar Valley, but I did read that during the 1884 geological survey of the park, a geologist named the, the Lamar River for, okay, get this name, Lucius Quinta, Lucius <laughs> Quintius Cincinnatus Lamar, who was at the time the Secretary of the Interior. So that's where the Lamar River and the Lamar Valley got its name. <laughs> How would you like to have that name? <laughs> I can, um, can't even pronounce no, it. No, I like Matt Smith better. <laughs> I, I, I like names with one syllable. <laughs> There are no geothermal features back there, so no geysers and bubbling mud pots and things like that, which you find in other parts of Yellowstone National Park. I'm surprised by this. It's the least visited area of the park. I it's, think that's why we love it so I know, much. It's, it's my favorite mm -hmm. part of the park, so maybe we shouldn't tell people this. I know. So I know. We go out there, but uh, there's also a lot of room, so it, it can handle quite a few visitors. There's enough pullouts that. I've never really not been able to find a place to park if we want to get out and, and look at the wildlife. That's right. And when you make the turn from Tower Junction and you first enter Lamar Valley, uh, you have a lot of open grassland areas where the, the bison like to roam. And so the wildlife viewing is great because you can see for a long way. But after about 13 miles or so, it leaves that Lamar River Valley and it starts climbing to the northeast and you start going up in elevation and then there are more forests and a lot more mountains. And I think the whole drive is just absolutely beautiful. One thing we did the last time, we actually stayed in Cook City for a night. And so we went back into the park after dinner. This was in July. And we had folding chairs in the truck. And we parked along a pullout, got out our folding chairs, and sat there and watched the sunset and watched the bison roam. And it was a really, really great memory. And even when there are other people around, even in the same pullout, you can just Put your folding chairs right in front of the truck and other people do that, but you still feel like you're you're there by yourself. People are respectful of the peace and quiet and it's fun to watch the wildlife. So moving on to the great state of South Dakota, the beautiful Black Hills area, which is in the southwestern part of the state, we're going to talk about one of our favorite scenic drives, which happens to be in a state park, Custer State Park, and that would be the Needles Highway. Now, the Needles Highway is just part of a bigger set of scenic roads. There's a 70-mile Peter Norbeck National Scenic Byway, and it's four highways, really, that are connected kind of in a uh, somewhat of a figure eight. Now, we've driven all of those 
Yes, so on that Peter Norbeck National Scenic Byway, we thought that the most interesting sections were the Iron Mountain Road, which is uh, Highway 16A. And what's cool about that is it has three different tunnels. And if you're driving it towards Mount Rushmore, they built the tunnels so it would frame Mount Rushmore through the opening. So that's a very cool drive. But our favorite part of this whole 70-mile loop is the Needles Highway, which is Highway 87. And as I said, this section runs through Custer State Park. And it also has three narrow tunnels blasted through Granite Mountains as well. We we should say that these roads are only open generally April through October. So the reason we keep saying this is a lot of times people will email us or leave us a message saying, hey, I'm going to this place in March and I really want to see this or that. And you you have to do a little bit of research ahead of time to make sure everything's open. Right, exactly. Now, the reason it was named the Peter Norbeck National Scenic Byway is he was a senator and a governor for South Dakota. And in the the 1920s and 30s, he personally planned the layout of both the Needles Highway and the Iron Mountain Road section. And even when people told him that you couldn't possibly put a road through those landscapes, through those landscapes, he persisted in building them. They're considered masterpieces of engineering, uh, just like going to the Sun Road. And, you know, this entire byway includes spiraling bridges and hairpin curves, and as we mentioned, the tunnels, and some really incredible views. And it has been named one of the 10 most outstanding byways in America. Now, the name Needle, or the the term needle, comes from the fact that some of the granite formations that you see alongside these roads, they're, they're kind of needle-like. They're tall and skinny. And this road can get crowded in the summertime. And the tunnels that we mentioned are very narrow, and you can only have one car go through them at a time. So the backups can get pretty long. So we would suggest, again, like most things, either go off-season or go very early so you don't get stuck in a really long backup. We've done these uh, roads a few times, and I think we've always done them early in the morning, but but not like 6 o'clock in the morning, like, mm-hmm. like 8, 9-ish. Mm-hmm. And we haven't run into too much traffic. But and the thing you got to remember is these tunnels are narrow. I mean, oh, my like gosh. The Hope I- tunnel is – Nine and a half feet. The Iron Creek Tunnel is nine feet wide. And the Needle's Eye is eight feet, four inches wide. So that we were driving it back when we had the Ford F-150, and I had to pull the mirrors in. There's no way you can squeak two cars in there at a time. Oh, no way. In fact, well, I don't even know if they let RVs on the road. I, I don't know. I mean, you yeah. have to check out the exact dimensions if you're thinking of pulling a trailer or RV up there. But sometimes there are hikers in the tunnels. Uh-huh. Uh, people park on one side or the other, and then they want to see the other side, so they walk through, which sometimes is actually a good thing because once we had to, we had a set of hikers actually do traffic control, uh-huh. and <laughs> they could see through the end of the tunnel and tell the cars at the other end to stop and guide us through. So everyone has to be on their best courteous behavior mm. and be patient because there's usually a line at both sides of the tunnel. That's right. And the last time we drove it, right before we entered the Needles Eye Tunnel, this mountain goat had walked down right above the tunnel. You know, there was a huge uh, 
cliff face and he was making his way down and of course all the cars stopped right where they were everyone jumped out of their car because people they love to see the wildlife and it was pretty cool to see the mountain goat perched right above the tunnel we'll post a picture of that but i think one of the reasons we love this drive is it is <laughs> I'm trying not to say stunning. It's so beautiful. The road is very windy and curvy. And as Matt mentioned, you have these needle-like granite spires surrounding the road. It's absolutely gorgeous. And we usually drive it from southeast to northwest. And at that end is the beautiful Sylvan Lake. And that's I- one of the reasons why the highway's crowded is because some people are going to the Sylvan Lake area. Uh And you can get to Sylvan Lake other ways, but if you're coming from the lower part, the southern part of Custer State Park, that's the Needles Highway is kind of the shortest way you can get up there. And uh, then there's great hikes right by Sylvan Lake. I mean, it's beautiful just to walk around that lake, but Mm -hmm. we've done other hikes. You can do the Harney Peak or the, the Black Elk Peak right there from from the parking lot at Sylvan Lake. And there's also the Sunday Gulch hike we did, which we loved. That was beautiful. And that was beautiful. Also over in that area is the uh, Sylvan Lake Lodge, which is a historic lodge. So there is a lot to do over there, as there is not only in the entire Custer State Park, but also in the entire Black Hills area. And we have to mention that you cannot go to Custer State Park without going to look for the bison. Oh, yeah. They have a a good-sized bison herd there. If you go to the visitor center, generally they kind of know where the bison are in the park. Uh, we should mention that it is a fee park. There's a $20 fee, and that entrance fee is good for a week. Yep, definitely worth the 20 bucks. Oh, for yeah. Sure. It's one of those state parks, and we've seen a few of these where it has a national park feel to it. Mm-hmm. So moving on just slightly east in South Dakota is the beautiful Badlands National Park. And we love that Badlands Loop State Scenic Byway, which is actually Highway 240. I love that highway. We should mention, though, it is a very different scene than some of these others. Mm -hmm. It is desert. It is Badlands. That's why it's named Badlands. Mm -hmm. Eroded cliff sides, but they're beautiful. Oh, my gosh. It is absolutely gorgeous. The Loop Road runs for about 39 miles, and it is the main park road that goes by the visitor center and quite a few trailheads. They consider it a loop because if you exit I-90 at Cactus Flat, which is also, by the way, the exit for the Minuteman Missile National Historic Site, which is a very cool place to go, And then you go through the park, and then it loops back to I-90 further west at Wall, the little town of Wall, which is where Wall Drug is. So that's why they consider it a loop. We should mention, we have been in that Minuteman missile site and sat through the movie. The the little documentary movie that they do for Minuteman missiles is fantastic. Uh It's very interesting. It's definitely worth stopping if you do nothing but just stop in there and watch the documentary film. Now, they have some other silos that that are Uh open, and and those are cool, too. But that documentary movie is is interesting to watch. I thought it was a lot more interesting than I had expected it to be. Also, when you exit at the other end, the little town of Wall, I know we mentioned this in an earlier podcast episode, has the famous Wall drugstore, which – Everybody should see just because it. Because you can get maple fudge there. 
And you can, you can you get can, anything you there. Can get, you can get pretty much <laughs> any item of merchandise that is made out of an American flag. Mm-hmm. I got to go back and get some American flag cowboy boots. That's right. It's considered a national treasure because it's very historic. Everyone wants to stop there and walk through. But it's fun to see, too. So we would recommend everybody stop at Wall. But anyway, back to the Badlands Road. It is open all year. I know, I'm sure they get a, a lot of snow there. But the Park Service, I'm guessing, does a good job of clearing that because they keep it open all year round. So this... Scenic road through the Badlands, it has incredible sights of eroded cliffs, of buttes, of multicolored spires. There's many overlooks. I think there's 15 or 16 overlooks. One thing that we have found is that because of the interesting landscape and the colors of the rocks, it's probably better to go early morning or at dusk. Because under direct sunlight, high noon, a lot of the shadows and the colors get washed out. So what we have done, even if we're there mid-afternoon driving through, we'll come back before dusk and spend a couple of hours. And it's interesting how the colors come out a lot more. It is. We spent one of our favorite evenings there watching the sunset. And I think we were Gosh, almost the only people out on that scenic road. It was in September. And we we went to a few different viewpoints and watched the sunset. And again, we'll post some photos. But it was um, it was an incredible night for us. And I will also note that these all these pullouts, these 16 or so different pullouts, if you're driving by in your car and you look over at the pullout, It might not look that spectacular, but once you actually park there and get out and walk to the edge, the views are so much different than what you would see from your car that it's definitely, definitely worth stopping at these pullouts and walking to the end. I mean, they're there for a reason. And the other thing I love about the park is you can just kind of wander wherever you want. They also have quite a bit of wildlife in the park. We have seen... What were the sheep that we saw along the side of the road? Were they goats? Were they sheep? <laughs> we saw a bunch of them along the side of the road. Right. They were bighorn sheep. I think they were. Uh-huh. Right. And, uh-huh. of course, they have a, a good-sized bison herd uh-huh. in the park. However, we'll tell you that uh, they're sometimes a little hard to find. Uh, we've, we have found them mostly in that northwestern area over by Sage Creek. So if you're, you're set on... Finding bison, I would go to that area. Also up in that same area, the Sage Creek area, are some prairie dog towns. And those are very fun to see. (laughs) The prairie dogs always are very welcoming, aren't they? They're either screaming at us or they're welcoming us. I'm not sure what, but they're making a lot of noise. (laughs) They always sit by the side of the road. Just they're not going to move. They have decided that they are not going to give ground to cars and trucks. That's right. But we love the Badlands, and especially if you're doing Custer State Park, both great public lands to do on the same trip. Moving on to Colorado, inside of Rocky Mountain National Park, there is a a great road, Trail Ridge Road, that goes up over the top of the park and, and down to the, it essentially goes from Estes Park to Grand Lake. Mm-hmm. It's 48 miles long. And again, this park road is open usually the end of May through sometime in October because of the deep, deep snow. The original 
auto route that they had through the, the high country there was the Old Fall River Road, which opened in 1920. And it, it's gravel, it's narrow, it's steep. But the Park Service, they, they realized that that just wasn't going to accommodate the large number of cars and, and the modern size of cars. So they built this Trail Ridge Road in 1938. And we've been on that old Fall River Road. We <laughs> yeah. did that years ago. And it's interesting. Uh-huh. It's uh, worth a drive. It's still open, right? So the cool thing about the Trail Ridge Road is it reaches an elevation of over 12,000 feet, making it the highest continuously paved road in the United States. Also, the Alpine Visitor Center up there at the top is the highest visitor center in the National Park Service system. And that visitor center can be crowded. It's a popular (laughs) destination Mm -hmm. for people. A lot of people just go up to that visitor center and turn around. But the the views are, let's think of another word, <laughs> the, the views of the Rocky Mountains, I guess that would be to the south from that visitor center, are pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, they are. And you are at this point up in the Alpine tundra. You're above treeline. They have a little trail, remember, that goes up to a viewpoint, and it's a little bit steep, I could not even catch my breath up there at 12,000 feet. I was huffing and puffing just to make it up to the top there. We used to take our kids up there in the summertime, and we would drive up to the visitor center, one of the things they love to do. And coming from the Midwest, in the middle of summer, you could go and find a patch of snow. That's always a big deal for kids. Mm -hmm. Generally, you could find patches of snow up there by the visitor center area. Yeah, we have some great memories of that road. And it's it's beautiful because you start down in the park at a, a much lower elevation. So you have the all the beauty of Rocky Mountain National Park forests. But then as you climb, you, you see the scenery out your window change to this alpine wonderland. So the vistas are a little bit of everything as you go over uh, Trail Ridge Road. And that's why we think it's one of the most scenic drives in our public lands. If we move on to the west, staying in Colorado... We'll talk about a road that we have found just a couple years ago, had no idea it even existed. So this was a hidden gem, or maybe we're just ignorant, (laughs) (laughs) but it's the San Juan Skyway Scenic Byway. It's about 25 miles long, and it uh, connects the town of Uray and Silverton, Colorado. And I never know if I'm saying Uray correctly. we Called it Uray for a long time. Yeah, but, uh, I think you are. I think their little saying is hooray for Uray. So I think it's you are saying that correctly. But this section of highway is called the Million Dollar Highway, and it runs through San Juan National Forest. It is open year-round, but of course they see a ton of snow, so I think that at times it might be impassable. But technically, this section is open year-round. They call it the Million Dollar Highway because when it was hand-carved by the Russian immigrant Otto Mears back in 1880s, they they claim that it cost a million dollars to build. So I don't know what that is in today's dollars. I don't either. A billion. He built this highway 
uh, so he could transport his ore from Silverton to the railroad in Uray. And then this original route that he built was widened in the 1930s, but it is still dangerous and narrow. Yeah, there are some uh, narrow, dangerous roads in that area. This this one, it's it's paved If and, and all of these roads. If you're paying attention, you'll be fine. Yeah. Now, the 12 miles south of Uray goes through a gorge. And the reason it's challenging and hazardous to drive is because there are steep cliffs, narrow lanes, and absolutely no guardrails on these steep drop-offs. And as you climb up Red Mountain Pass, you've got hairpin curves and, again, narrow lanes. And uh, it's been actually cut directly into the side of the mountains. So the scenery is... Jaw dropping. <laughs> That's <laughs> there's, a good one. <laughs> there's, a, there's a new term, jaw dropping. Jaw dropping mm-hmm. is, is a good word for that. Jaw dropping and sketchy. In fact, USA Today named this one of the world's most dangerous roads. It's the only road in the lower 48 to make that particular list. Now, that said, it's safe to drive. Well, you have to pay and we don't t- want attention. To, we and don't want to discourage people from driving it. No, it's, it's beautiful. It's jaw-dropping. <laughs> so as Matt said, we discovered it by accident. This was uh, in July of 2019. We had done a road trip with our friends John and Lolly to see some parks. And after Yellowstone and some of the parks in Wyoming, we headed to Colorado. And we visited Black Canyon of the Gunnison. And as we made our way south, we were headed toward Mesa Verde. We had booked a hotel room in Uray just as a stopover. But when we got there, first of all, the town is one of the most charming mountain towns we've ever seen. Charming, yes. <laughs> it's charming. <laughs> charming. Darling? Did you call it darling? Darling. They had a good brewery, which it's is a, also important a, to us. It is a hidden gem. And is it a magical place? Um. I think when it snows there, it would probably be magical. We found out after we got there that there is a perimeter trail, a hiking trail that goes around the town in the mountains. So when we woke up the next morning, we took a, a couple hours and we hiked some of the perimeter trail, which was absolutely beautiful. But then when we started driving south towards Mesa Verde and we got on this section of the Million Dollar Highway, we didn't even know what was coming. Yeah, total surprise. And I'm glad John was driving Yeah, his, his big old truck <laughs> on that trip. We all did the 4,000-mile driving loop, all four of us in the same truck, mm-hmm. which, which went fine. It did. Uh, We're still friends. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad he was driving that, that million-dollar highway. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful and a lot of great hiking opportunities off that road as well. Yeah. And then we ended up in Durango for the afternoon head lunch and that, that's a cute little town on, uh-huh. our, on our way to Mesa Verde and they have the narrow gauge railroad there which I would also like to do sometime that's on our list yeah the mm-hmm. list still keeps getting longer now if we go further west into Utah we're, we'll talk about some roads by Capitol Reef National Park or, or in in and around Capitol Reef National Parks. And there's actually three of them we want to talk about. Right. And this was tough to narrow down because if you've been to southern Utah, you know that almost every road is scenic. Oh, yeah. You know, our list, we would have dozens. But just for this episode, as Matt said, we're narrowing it down to Capitol Reef because there are three scenic drives we're going to talk about. 
The first is just the that Highway 24 that runs what from essentially from Hanksville to Torrey, the town towns of Hanksville to Torrey, and it just a beautiful drive. And the section that it goes through the park is those cliffs, those red mm-hmm. cliffs inside Capitol Reef National Park are. Jaw dropping. <laughs> <laughs> That's our new word now. Gonna, uh-huh. I need a thesaurus. <laughs> the section that runs through the park is about 25 miles long. And the road is a little bit curvy and windy, very safe to drive. But out your windows on both sides, the scenery is spectacular. Now, you can drive through the park on this section of Highway 24 without paying a fee. There are no kiosks for the entrance fee. And there are a lot of stops you can make along this road, lots of things to do. There are There's petroglyph viewing. There's the hike to Hickman Bridge, the Fruita District. Um, we love Panorama Point to watch the sunset. And there's some great hikes at Chimney Rock. So lots to do along this main road. But even if you don't get out of your car, just to drive it is absolutely beautiful. You could do this park as just a drive through park and have really... Some, uh-huh. some great views. Uh-huh. Now, the second road we're going to talk about, it's confusing because this one is called the Capitol Reef Scenic Drive, not to be confused with what we just talked about, which was also a scenic drive. The scenic drive is about eight miles. It is paved. And at this point, you do need to pay the park fee to drive it, which is uh, last time we looked, it was $20. It's open year-round, this section, but it can close suddenly because of flash floods or deep mud on the road, or they even get snow down there. Now, the scenic drive starts at the visitor center, which is is right close to uh, right off Highway 24, and then it goes all the way uh, south through the park, and then it dead ends. But once you start on that scenic drive, you quickly get to the homestead. Mm-hmm. That has the Gifford House. Mm-hmm. And one of our favorite stops is the little house that sells pies. Oh, my gosh. You cannot go to Capitol Reef National Park without getting a pie at the Gifford House. They also sell cinnamon rolls, which sell out quicker than the pies. Mm-hmm. But we found out on this last visit a few weeks ago when we went to get our pie that the woman that was ringing us up said they are always sold out by 2 o'clock for sure. So if you want to get pie, do not wait until the end of the day or you'll be disappointed. I asked her, I said, do you ever sell out of pies? She said, every day. Mm-hmm. Every so just, day. So you've been warned. Now, as you're driving down the scenic drive, there are two dirt roads. There are two spurs that come off of this. There's the Grand Wash and there is Capitol Gorge. You can drive down both of those. Grand Wash only runs for about a mile and Capitol Gorge is a two-mile drive on the dirt road. And we just did the Capitol Gorge and it's beautiful back there. You're basically driving through a slot canyon. Right. Yeah, that was beautiful. Now, there's also a little dirt road off to the right also Mm -hmm. that we went down. Not as much down there to see, but it it was interesting. It was. We took it until we got to a river crossing. (laughs) crossing (laughs) And then then we turned around. (laughs) 
But back on this scenic drive are some of the best hiking trails in the park, in our opinion, off of these two spurs. So you have Cassidy Arch and Grand Wash, and then you have hikes like the Tanks and the Golden Throne. So it's definitely, well, it's worth a drive back there, first of all, as we said before, even if you never get out of your car. But there are also some great hiking opportunities back there as well. And we've done the Cassidy Arch and part of the Grand Wash. Those were both great. That Cassidy arched hike was was great. And there's a there's a couple of trails left that we haven't done. So we still have a few things on the list. We do. One of the things that Capitol Reef is famous for is what's called the water pocket fold. And that is basically an upheaval in the earth's surface that extends for about a hundred miles. And this upheaval It creates cliffs and canyons and arches and natural bridges, and it's just absolutely beautiful. It's a long bump in the earth that creates these cliffs, and over the years, as the wind and water have have eroded the edges of this bump, it's created these spectacular canyons. And it also created a challenge for people who had to go east and west, part across that part of the country. Uh And that kind of leads us to the next interesting road, which is the Burr Trail. Yes, that's been on our list for a long time. We thought that it was going to be a little more rugged than it actually was. So on previous visits, we were there once when it was snowing and we opted not to do it, which was probably a good idea. But this past month, we had the chance to finally drive the Burr Trail. This is a road. It's a 67-mile road that connects the towns of Boulder, Utah in the west to Bullfrog in kind of southeast of, of Boulder, and it passes through several different public lands. It's a, a lot of it's in the Escalante, the Grand Staircase National Monument. And part of it goes through Capitol Reef National Park, and, and even part of it goes through Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. That's right. Now, the history for this was that in the 1870s, a man named John Burr, who was a cattle rancher in the rugged backcountry, he needed to develop a route to move his cattle between the winter and summer ranges, as well as to market. So he developed this cattle trail through the rough country around the water pocket fold and through Burr Canyon and through the Muley Twist Canyons. And it came to be known as the Burr Trail. And when you drive through this and you look at the scenery and the canyons, it is a miracle that you could get a herd of cattle through that. He must have had a really good reason to have to get his <laughs> cattle to Bullfrog as opposed to somewhere else. I know. I can't even imagine how long that must have taken him to get those those cattle through all those twists and turns and canyons. We've known about this road for a long time, but we've never done it because I think we always thought it was gravel and just a, a rough road, but it's paved all the way from the town of Boulder to where the road goes into Capitol Reef National Park. So there's a good chunk of it that's paved, and you can pretty much drive any kind of vehicle down it. Yeah, we saw all kinds of cars. So it's not restricted to high clearance or four wheel drive, unless, of course, it's muddy or rainy. 
as we mentioned before, Capitol Reef National Park website has a number that you can call to check road conditions around the park. And they talk about the Burr Trail in this recording, and they'll give you updates as far as whether it's blocked in any areas or impassable due to weather. So definitely call this recorded uh, number and check out the condition of the road before you head up there. The scenery along the entire road is really... Jaw-dropping. <laughs> Jaw-dropping. <laughs> From when you start in Boulder and you're in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, you drive through Long Canyon, gorgeous, gorgeous canyon with some uh, trailheads off there where you can hike. And then, of course, when you enter Capitol Reef National Park, you've got the views of the water pocket fold. And there are some hiking opportunities there as well. We stopped at a few of those. There's Upper Muley Twist mm-hmm. and Lower Muley Twist, and we went to both of them. We drove the Upper Muley Twist Road, and having driven that road, I would recommend that if you're going to go and hike back there, you probably want to stop at the first set of pullouts that are about a mile down that dirt road. Mm -hmm. Because we went further, and it quickly got treacherous. I was in over my head quickly just trying to keep the truck from bottoming out and That's a little sketchy unless you really know what you're doing and have a high-clearance vehicle. And we ended up going to the lower Muley Twist Canyon and hiking that. You hike through a beautiful canyon. We spent, I don't know, maybe an hour or two hiking back, and that was really pretty. And just a little bit past that, you come to the infamous Burr Canyon switchbacks, (laughs) which drop about 800 feet and a half a mile. And just stopping at the top, we took some photos. It was a little bit intimidating from up there because there are no guardrails, and it's just a series of switchback after switchback. But if you take your time, pay attention, you'll be fine. If it's dry, then pretty much any kind of car can go down it. I would not recommend a trailer of any kind on that road. Uh, It is a little tight in places. I think you could get two cars to pass each other on parts of, of the road, not all of it. For sure. So those are three of our favorite drives in Capitol Reef, which it's interesting because Capitol Reef is the least attended national park in Utah. It doesn't get quite as much love as the other four do, but we find it absolutely beautiful and a little bit more remote, especially when you're up in a place like the Burr Trail. We keep finding places in Capitol Reef yet to explore. Mm -hmm. It's now becoming one of our favorite national parks. So if we travel all the way over to the east coast of the country to beautiful Virginia and Shenandoah National Park, there is a beautiful scenic drive that runs through the park called the Skyline Drive. It's the main park road. It runs about 105 miles north and south. Now it goes along the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's called Skyline Drive, because it's way up there. And they their little tagline is Ride the Sky. But it offers some incredible views. It's open year-round. The very south end connects with the Blue Ridge Parkway. We've driven quite a bit of the Skyline Drive, but we've never done the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
it is itself a National Park Service unit, and I've always wanted to do that. Right. I read this. It is the most visited unit of the National Park System every year except for four years. It didn't make that list. But the thing about the Blue Ridge Parkway, and we'll have to include this on a future episode, is that it runs for 469 miles. So while we've explored part of it that runs through Great Smoky Mountains National Park, we still have a huge chunk of it that we haven't driven. So I think Blue Ridge Parkway would make everyone's list of scenic drives. But for us, we will have to come back to that on a different episode. One of the reasons that Shenandoah National Park is famous for is back in the 20s, Herbert Hoover had a summer home there. This was back before Camp David ever existed called Rapidan Camp. Mm-hmm. And then as president, he ended up calling it the Brown House. Right, instead of the White House. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and we, we took a little tour of the, the Brown House with a volunteer ranger. And she asked the group, does anyone know why it's called the Brown House? And mm-hmm. Stumped me. She goes, well, he already had a White House. <laughs> I think that was her little yeah. joke for all the That's when I walked tr- away. <laughs> but anyway, so President Hoover called for the construction of the Skyline Drive in uh, 1929. And the, the groundbreaking took place a couple of years later. And most of it was built by the CCC. The Skyline Drive was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1997. It became a National Scenic Byway in 2005, and it was designated a National Historic Landmark in 2008. So it's got all the proper designations. Mm -hmm. So it's official. We said before, it's called the Skyline Drive because it follows the ridge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm -hmm. And so you there's about 75 scenic overlooks and stunning views. Stunning. There, we haven't used Mm -hmm. that. Stunning views of Shenandoah Valley. And it's one of the I don't know if it is the highest concentration of black bear population in the lower 48 states. I I think I read that once, but there's a lot of black bears there. There are, and they do warn you when you're driving this road, the speed limit is 35 miles an hour for that very reason, because bears cross the road as well as deer and turkey, and they're trying to control any possible accidents that might happen. So since it's 35 miles an hour, and it runs about 105 miles. If you're just going to drive the road and not stop at any of the scenic overlooks, it would take you about three hours to drive. But the scenic overlooks, most of them are definitely worth a stop to take in those views. When we were there, and this has been a while, but we were there in October, and it was great to see all the fall colors. So that's a great time to go also is when the trees are changing. Mm-hmm. We loved Shenandoah and the Skyline Drive. Now, these are some of our favorites, but also, again, there's a long list of scenic drives that we didn't talk about. Mm -hmm. These are just some of the roads to keep on your list that if you're ever in these areas, definitely want to hit them. Definitely. Do we have a mailbag question this week, Karen? We always have a mailbag question, Matt. Today's question is from Monica in Michigan, and she sent us an email, and she wrote, 
One time in Yellowstone, we witnessed a man get much too close to a bison while we were pulled over in our car. He practically walked right up to one of the big old boys. I was afraid we might witness something that ends up badly and on the news. Have you guys ever witnessed someone get way too close to wildlife? And if so, did you say anything like a word of warning to them? Wow. Have we ever seen anyone? <laughs> basically, the question is, have we ever seen anyone do anything stupid in the <laughs> national park? Only every single time we've ever been to a national park. Every single time. <laughs> Maybe there was one one time that I'm I'm forgetting. I think in general, if there's children involved, we'll say something. Yes. If it involves a small child or even a medium-sized child. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll say something and we don't care how upset they get at us. Yes. And we also say something when people are breaking the park rules. So in answer to your question, Monica, we actually have not witnessed someone get too close to wildlife. What we do see all the time, and this is kind of a tricky one, we see people doing dangerous things on the edges of cliffs. We've seen it in Yosemite and Zion and, of course, the Grand Canyon and Horseshoe Bend, where people are taking selfies with their backs to the edge dangerously close. Sometimes they're even hanging off the rocks. And in those instances, we usually don't say anything because, well, first of all, you don't want to startle them and have them lose their train of thought. But second of all, we also don't really want to be around if something goes horribly wrong. Right. I don't want to startle somebody who's on the edge of a cliff. Right. We have seen people very close to edges of cliffs. And in a situation like that, you just have to not distract them. They should know that they're doing something dangerous. Uh, so just try not to. Again, if there's if there's a child involved, we'll say something. Probably the thing that is the most dangerous that we've seen in national parks, other than being on the edge of cliffs, which we've seen a lot of that, is when there are traffic jams that people will run out into the highway between cars to go see whatever, an eagle or a bison or bear, whatever. And that's when people, that's very dangerous because they're just looking at that thing. And we've seen people run right in front of cars and, and in particular kids, because, you know, they, they don't realize that there are cars coming. Right. That is incredibly dangerous. And that seems to happen a lot, especially in Yellowstone. I think the one thing though, that really, really, ticks us off is when we see people in the national parks bringing their dogs on the trails when it's clear in almost every national park, the rules are clear, you cannot take your dogs on the trails. And yet we still see that all the time. And I th we always say something politely. Uh, we inform them that, you know, dogs aren't allowed. And usually we get a complete look of surprise from these people yeah. like they had no idea. I didn't see the huge sign that's, <laughs> right. that's at the beginning of the trail that says no dogs. Right. <laughs> it's not that we're not dog lovers or anything like that. We're not dog haters. But there's a reason why the Park Service doesn't allow dogs on certain trails. And it's not every single trail in, in every park. There are, there are some that they're allowed. I don't know that. They're ever allowed off leash. That's a whole nother thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot of times it's that they're trying to protect the wildlife in a lot of cases. If the wildlife smells the scent of dogs, then they're going to they're not going to frequent that area. And and then a lot of a lot of people just don't pick up after their dogs. And I, and I know that there are 
honestly, it's the dog owners that obey all the rules who get most upset sure. about this. So it, it's just the thing is, I know people feel like their dogs are their, their kids and they want to take them all places, but there are rules. Mm-hmm. And overall, the national parks are not a good place to bring a dog because it's very restrictive as to where you can take your dog. We also hike in a lot of national forests, and the rules are different. On a lot of national forests, you can bring your dog, but the dog has to be on a leash. And gosh, I'd say 75% of the time, the people who bring their dogs, they are not on a leash. And again, we always say something and either we're ignored or they nod their head and say thank you and continue on. (laughs) Well, that one time we were up there on a hike and there were mountain goats Mm -hmm. and the dog started harassing the mountain goats and the owners just really didn't care. They didn't. And so that's the kind of thing that the park service or the forest service is trying to prevent is keeping these areas as wild as they can be. And if they allow dogs, that's almost always the dog needs to be on the leash. Right. So it's an interesting question, Monica, because we have seen social media posts about this very thing. And it seems like the comments are divided. And there are people who comment that they always speak up and say something if they see someone breaking the rules. And then there are people who say, it's none of my business. Everyone should just go on and mind their own business. So I think when it comes to the national parks and people breaking the rules, it is our business. That's how we look at it, because these parks belong to all of us. There are reasons that these rules are in place. And I think that Matt and I will always speak up when we see people breaking the rules. Do you have a question for our mailbag segment? If so, you can send us an email to Smith at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Go to facebook.com slash dearbobands or you can find us on Instagram at mattandkarensmith. To see pictures from our favorite scenic drives, go to www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com and click on the title for episode 20. There you'll find the show notes for this episode and links to other information. And we want to thank all of you who've left us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. Okay, so how are you doing on your goal to reach 500 ratings? (laughs) We're getting closer every day. I think we only need about 60 more or so. 60? (laughs) Yes, 660. But I bet we can get to 500 by Christmas time, and that will be my gift. Oh, good. So I'm off the hook. I don't (laughs) don't have to get you anything for Christmas, huh? (laughs) Uh, Not necessarily. But just a reminder, you can leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, even if you listen to our show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. It's really easy to leave a review, and it helps us out a lot. The books that this podcast is based on are available on Amazon.com. Just search Dear Bob and Sue. And you can also find more information about us by heading over to www.dearbobandsue.com. Our show is produced by the very talented team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. So from now on, Matt, we're no longer able to use the word spectacular. Do you want to just start using jaw-dropping instead? Well, jaw-dropping. I don't know. I need to get the thesaurus out. I have a thesaurus. It's a nice thick one, but it's holding up the lamp in my office. (laughs) (laughs) 